Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello, welcome everybody to this uh, latest edition of IFG Live, the events that you would have been coming to in Carlton Gardens, but instead can listen to as you're walking around the park. Uh, We're looking today at science advice in government. This has been a torrid time, I think, for science advice in government. Coping with a global pandemic always was going to be. It made media, media superstars of Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, and his colleague, Sir Patrick Vallance, the government chief scientific advisor. We're all on tenterhooks to know whether Stage has given the green light to the latest government move. You'll have seen ministers uh, now perhaps distancing themselves from the scientists over the famous two metres, not quite a rule. Uh, we look to see whether the scientists purse their lips at those press conferences when, of course, they appear as ministers make their next announcement. And even those who've expressed skepticism in the past about experts have told us for a long time that the decisions in this crisis are being led by the science, a science that seemed to lead to different political decisions in other countries. So this is a great time to step back and look at science advice in government, not just on pandemics, so that's obviously what's preoccupying us at the moment, but on other huge issues, not least climate change and the environment. And I'm joined today by a seriously expert panel. And of course, we have a lot of questions that you've sent in that we'll try to get through. Introduce myself. I'm Jill Rutter. I am a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. And I'm delighted to be joined today first by my former colleague, Sir Robert Watson, who I worked with when he was Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. But Bob's not just had DEFRA on his uh, on his list. He's also been Deputy Chief Scientist in the White House to Al Gore and Bill Clinton and was Chief Scientific Advisor at the World Bank. Uh, he's now back in the US. Then I'm joined by Professor James Wilsden, Director of the brilliantly named Research on Research Institute. Yes, I did a double take on that too and Vice Chair of the International Network of Government Science Advice. So he's in a great position to do a bit of compare and contrast. Then Tracy Brown, Director of Sense About Science. IFG have had a long and productive collaboration with Sense About Science, promoting transparency in government use of evidence. And indeed, at the moment, we're doing a joint exercise on the transparency behind the government's COVID decisions. And last, but very, very far from least, delighted to be joined by Tom Whipple, science editor of The Times, who's been doing a terrific job demystifying COVID for Times readers, uh, if you can get behind the paywall. Uh, We can't ignore the current context, but I wanted to start a bit further back. James, uh, you've looked at the development of the role of the government chief scientific advisor. Who are they and what exactly are they supposed to do? Well, Jill, we've had uh, a science advisor in the UK um, continuously since since the mid sixties, nineteen sixty four, and and even earlier than that in in the context of uh, defence policy, which is where the role first emerged. Um, but Solly Zuckerman was the first uh, government chief scientist. The role that uh, Patrick Vallance now, as you say, famously uh, plays, um, and uh, the role's been occupied by. Well, Patrick is the 12th science advisor since 1964. They've all been men, um, drawn from a range of, range of different scientific backgrounds, uh, all very eminent in their own way. Um, and uh, they've they've had sort of different relationships, I think it's fair to say, with uh, the uh, prime minister to whom they are notionally um, 
the advisor, the prime minister and the cabinet. Some have been very close uh, to the prime ministers of the time. Uh, Dave King, of course, who's been prominent in recent days, was had, had a very uh, close relationship with Tony Blair. Um, others have been a bit more distant. Um, I mean, Patrick Vallance, I think it's fair to say, is certainly the most prominent person to have occupied the role, given just the... Uh, frequency and intensity with which we, he's been, you know, on our screens and, and in front of us, uh, you know, every day throughout this crisis, or, or him and Chris Whitty between them. So, you know, this is a very unusual time. I mean, I used to teach uh, about science policy, science advice um, when I worked down at the University of Sussex, and you sort of struggled to find visual images, as it were, of these roles, because they tend to be backroom um uh, you know, roles in, in, in most governments. You'd, you'd occasionally get a very nice photograph, for example, of uh, John Holdren walking side by side with uh, President Obama in the US, who, who was his science advisor. But many of them, uh, uh, you know, you'd struggle to find a, a picture of uh, John Beddington alongside Gordon Brown, etc. And suddenly you go from that to the situation where, uh, you know, most days of the week, uh, one or other of them is there uh, side by side with the prime minister or, or other members of the cabinet, so it certainly has raised the visibility of these roles, and I think subjected them to uh, very intense pressure. Obviously, given the situation, but also a, a, a new and heightened level of scrutiny. So, one of the big questions coming out of this whole mess, I guess, will be whether our science advice structures were really uh, as good as we thought they were, and whether they have uh, operated as effectively as we hoped they would. Uh, under the pressure of this crisis. So, Bob, you've done this chief scientific advisor role in a number of uh, of uh, institutions. Um, what makes a distinguished scientist like you want to be uh, a government scientific advisor? Very straightforward. I would like to make sure that government has the very best scientific information available upon which they make informed decisions. And when I say make the scientific advice available, they need to understand what do we know with certainty, what do we not know, and what are the implications of uncertainty? What are the implications of knowledge gaps? And so the role of a chief scientific advisor is to make sure that they are credible, they've listened to the best scientists in the world, and when they explain that science to a minister in understandable terms, they will understand all aspects of the issue. So they need to understand the natural science issue. In this case of COVID-19, the health issues but they've also got to understand the social issues and the economic issues and what i found has been lacking in this debate is understanding what the economy and the financing issues are and so as a science advisor i would need to bring to the table not only my own skills as a natural scientist but the issues of social sciences the humanities technology and very important the economy and so my view is very straightforward. I would hope that I could help government officials make best informed decisions. And Bob, when you when you're sort of doing this, I mean, you never had to do the sort of you know uh, Boris and the Boffins press conferences we've seen, or you know, I think you're in the states now. The sort of Trump with Anthony Fauci and his uh, his COVID scientific team. Um, how uncomfortable is it for you as a chief scientific advisor to have your sort of scientific credibility perhaps here, perhaps being used? Some people have said, you know, is it being used as a human shield for ministers to be there to explain the science, but know that ministers actually have 
departed from what might be the sort of best scientific judgment. Do you find that hard? Would you be prepared to adopt that sort of public profile if you uh, if you were called on to do that? Yes, in fact, I, I would actually enjoy the public profile. I do it on biodiversity and climate change. Um, I think the key issue is I, as a scientific advisor, have to be very clear what we know and what we don't know but then the government has to be able to be very clear how did they come to the decision they made i've always argued that scientific knowledge and that does include social sciences economics and technology that scientific knowledge is a necessary condition for informed decision making uh, but it's not sufficient there are other issues that have to be taken into account when a government official makes the final decision the only place I would find it uncomfortable would be if government officials were distorting the science and, and trying to change the facts or trying to select only a subset of the facts. But then my job would be to challenge them. It would be very straightforward and they would have to be challenged on it. So I think both sides have a responsibility, the scientists or the science advisors and the government, to make sure that the public understand what we know, what we don't know, and how that has been translated into a government decision. Tracy, what do you think makes a good good scientific advisor? Do you have any views on, it's quite a difficult position, isn't it? Because they're sort of subject to some of the same rules as normal civil servants, but yet have to maintain their scientific integrity. How do you think they need to balance those two conflicting demands? Well, I think that the scientific advisors around the world, as um, as James's um, work on this has shown, are, are, are coming up with different ways of doing that. And some take a very much a quiet, a word in the ear type approach, and others are much more public. Obviously, what's made our current chief scientist public isn't so much his disposition on that matter, uh, but more the approach that's been adopted by Number Ten. Uh, and that whole kind of language of we're following the science advice. And um, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's noticed the discomfort um, that sometimes appears on that podium as uh, following the science advice uh, uh, is spelled out in terms of the policy and political decisions that that, um, that ministers are, are, um, are presenting. So I think, um, I think the current situation is really quite challenging. Um, you know, in Patrick Valance, you've got somebody who ostensibly is um, a great person to have in this job right now. I mean, someone who not only understands uh, uh, the issue reasonably well, but actually um, understands how large global organizations respond to medical issues, obviously with his, his background at GSK. Also, someone who has um, got a big history of transparency at GSK, or the first company to fully publish their clinical trials. Um, so, so, I mean, a great person to have in the job. However, I mean, there's a pretty open search at number 10 for a full guy at the moment. And, and since Matt Hancock announced the 100,000 tests thing to number 10's surprise, um, he's kind of removed himself from being that position because he's the hero who did the 100,000 tests. So the rather obvious person um, is, is somebody in, the, in a chief scientist role. I think everyone's very aware of that. Um, also very aware of it when you have ministers... Um, you know, coming under pressure, as Priti Patel and Kit Malthouse did on the Today program the other day about the quarantine, uh, immediately jumping to, well, you have to ask the scientists about that. Um, so I think people can feel that this is not a great environment in which to decide what kind of science advisor 
would you like to be? Um, because uh, it's kind of been decided by that dynamic. The one thing I would really emphasize, though, is it's really essential that every science advisor is accountable to Parliament. Um, I think without that, you don't have a leg to stand on in your department or as chief scientist uh, in terms of uh, uh, getting people to listen and uh, you know th that knowledge that you that you will be um, uh, held accountable by Parliament that you can be called before Parliament is is really really important. Um, and I think we've seen that uh, when that's dropped, when we've had uh, that lack of cross-cutting uh, scrutiny by the Parliamentary Committee, the SciTech Committee, I think we've seen similarly um, a, a drop in the status of chief scientists. But it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, as a chief scientific advisor, you are a civil servant. And then if you're giving sort of evidence, you're bound in a very similar way to the way in which civil servants are bound, that you don't undermine the position of ministers. So, um, so you know, how do you actually see that accountability to parliament working? Uh, they're not accountable in the way a sort of really independent watchdog organisation might be accountable. No, they aren't. But what they do have to do and what is expected for them to have any kind of credibility is um, that, that they must give an account of how what they've advised uh, accords with the scientific um, evidence on the issue. And I think that's enough to give a bit of a standing to the evidence and a consideration of the evidence in, in government departments. I think without it, um, and, and we've seen it happen um, where, you know, chief scientists have been ap appointed in uh, specific government departments and, and been rather brushed aside by the minister of the day. I think it is essential there is that dual accountability, almost a peer accountability in a sense that, that goes on when you're a chief scientist, where what you say must be credible um, and, uh, and show your familiarity with the scientific evidence and, and be in accord with that, uh, represent the uncertainties accurately and so forth. And I think there is something there to lean on in terms of your professional standing, but it's a conflict for sure. James, do you think that there's any of uh, any of Patrick Valance's predecessors who might have uh, might have sort of uh, enjoyed the role at the moment rather more than he has? Tracy said he's extraordinarily well qualified in terms of his background to deal with a global pandemic. But do you do you see anyone? I mean, obviously David King has thrown himself well, into the fray. Indeed, I mean, Sir David King obviously has uh, has uh, uh, brought himself uh, uh, back to the to the forefront of this. Uh, um, in a, in a very public and visible way. Um, we've heard less from, from other uh, predecessors publicly. I mean, Mark Wolpert, of course, is still uh, involved in the system in, as, as head of UKRI and, and, and he sits on SAGE. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't help reflecting, I'd be interested in Bob's view on this, but hearing the sad news over the course of the, the lockdown of, of uh, Bob May's uh, death, uh, who was, of course, uh, a previous government chief scientific advisor? Uh, I, you know, it, it was interesting to reflect on how someone like Bob would have operated in this in this uh, context and under this degree of, of media scrutiny, and how he would have sort of curbed uh, his tendency towards sort of four letter words in, in the daily press conferences. But in all seriousness, I mean, he was someone who, as chief scientist, particularly having uh, sort of lived and worked through things like the BSE crisis, I think came out of that with a very um, nuanced and, and sophisticated um, position on the importance of acknowledging uncertainty, acknowledging uh, the plurality of different um, uh, forms of evidence in decision-making and, and sort of not, I, I can't, I, I find, I struggle to think of Bob May allowing this constant recourse to, to, you know, the science in this sort of singular 
uh, self-evident way, which has been a very prominent part of the policy discourse over, over recent months here, because, you know, any of us on the scientific side, or on the social scientific side, who, who, who study and think about these systems, you know, you, the first thing really you, 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 you learn as you unpick these uh, contested, controversial cases is that, uh, uh, you know, there is no single science. There are all sorts of complicated uh, knots um, uh, with, with, you know, multiple uh, evidentiary inputs and, and lots of scope for interpretation. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I as, as Tracy was saying earlier, I, you know, at one level, it was nice and, and welcome to see the prominence being given to the scientific advisors in the, the sort of public and media presentation of this. But I also, from the very beginning of this, had a, a, a sort of gnawing worry, as it were, in seeing the prominence that that their, the, the prominent position that they were being given in, in in the in the sort of public eye, because it seemed to me to set up exactly the kind of dynamic we're now seeing, which Tracy's very well described, of of sort of blame shifting and and, and butt passing that uh, has has already begun, and, and and no doubt will intensify as as, as the months uh, run on and, and as we lead up to some public inquiry. So that's really interesting. And uh, and we keep on talking about public inquiries, more on that on the IFG podcast last week. Let's come on to this sort of notion of the science. Tom, uh, we've got this sort of network of acronyms that advise the government, SAGE, nerve tag, SPIM, SPIB, things like that. Can you just tell us how this is all supposed to work and actually how this feeds in to ministers, some of whom are noticeable for not actually having uh, science degrees? How on earth uh, is that science advice synthesized by the scientific advisors to uh, to get into policy making? Um, well, I think, I think the, the pressure we're seeing now is completely unlike Anything that I, I think has reasonably been experienced, certainly in my time um, covering science, and I think for quite a long time before that. Um, so I think that they're slightly learning as they go along uh, the best way to do it. Um, one of the real difficulties that they've certainly faced here, and that I think is always the case, but has been completely apparent here, is dealing with and communicating uncertainty. Um, the, the, the truth is that we talk about following the science and everyone talks about this. Um, and I think every country reasonably from the countries that take the New Zealand model to the countries that take the Sweden model could say that they are following the science. Um, the job of the chief scientific advisor is to somehow convey uncertainty within that range uh, so that the ministers can then decide on the course of action and decide how best to weigh these things up. Because uh, I think that the old, the old adage that uh, scientists should be on tap but not on top def definitely applies. Um, and I, th I think that uh, it's a very difficult line to tread for how you separate uh, pre presentation of science from giving uh, advice and guiding policy. So what's the, what's the challenge? And uh, we have a government, so this is a question from David Perrette. We have a, a government, you know, which is dominating its top ranks by generalists rather than people with sort of scientific training, one or two exceptions, but, uh, but predominantly true. You know, 
what are the challenges as uh, as a real scientific expert who really deeply understands that in synthesizing maybe the views you know as Patrick Valance has to do of a whole range of people coming through his advisory committee into comprehensible uh, assessment for those generalists what what skills does it take to do that I think it takes a skill to take very complex issues and simplify them without losing the nuances. Um, what you also need, though, of course, are government officials that are willing to learn and willing to listen. And listen is really very important. So the problem with many scientists are they talk in jargon. Uh, they're brilliant at talking to other scientific experts. They're not good at talking to intelligent people with a lack of scientific training. Um, I was very fortunate uh, when I was at DEFRA, I had two wonderful secretaries of state, Hilary Benn and Caroline Spellman, but they both listened. They weren't scientists, but they asked really probing questions, and my job was to make sure that between me and them, we asked all the right questions from a scientific perspective and a policy perspective. What are the policy implications uh, of this. And so effectively, I think on COVID-19, the big debate in both the US and the UK and most other countries in the world has been, to what degree do you want to risk people getting COVID and potentially dying of COVID versus closing down the economy through lockdown? What are the implications there? And of course, other social implications of a lockdown. And when I looked at the SAGE group, incredibly uh, wonderful people, which grew over time in disciplines. I don't think they had all the right disciplines there at the beginning, but I did note there is not a single economist that I uh, can understand on SAGE. And yet the debate very much is public health, social health, and the economy. So why would you have an advisory panel that doesn't have independent economic advice to balance out what they're probably getting from the different ministries, especially the finance ministry? And so I do, what I do question whether the right range of scientific issues were on the table from day one. I wondered whether you cringed when you uh, watched ministers here uh, repeating as an almost a sort of mantra throughout uh, this crisis that they've been, they've obviously aimed off a bit now, but that they were science-led. Uh, did you think, yes. yay, finally, we've broken through? Or did you think actually, you know, particularly as you're pointing to the very narrow range and perhaps narrow definition of science on on SAGE, do you think that was, uh, that was actually, you know, trying to almost say, uh, don't worry, we're not really making the decisions. We're just uh, someone else. Yeah, I, I don't think they portrayed it very well. I think Boris or whichever minister was giving a press briefing with or without Chris Whitty and the chief scientist, they should, we've taken scientific knowledge into account, but there are all of these other issues who are also considering. We are concerned about the mental health of people if there's a long lockdown. We are concerned about the economy from two perspectives. One is a macro perspective that government wants the overall economy of Great Britain to continue to grow. We're also, we're also worried about the microeconomic perspective of people losing jobs and not having food on the table or being able to pay their rent. 
And so I think what the government officials should have said is, we've looked at all the evidence, including the economics and behavioural sciences. They don't automatically give us an answer, but this is the decision we've taken for the time being, and this is why we took the decision. So I think they could have reframed it by saying, we've taken the science into account, but there are all of these factors that we're trying to weigh, especially when there is a lot of uncertainty at this moment in time. James, you are part of this great international network for on government scientific advice. You know, is the sort of model that the UK has of this sort of expert advisory committee with multiple people from multiple institutions, what must be a sort of mega screen Zoom call, uh, is that replicated elsewhere? Is this a uniquely British phenomenon or is it, uh, is it replicated globally? Well, I mean, we see, do see a diversity of different structures. The, the, um, I mean, definitely many countries are using expert panels, committees of various kinds in, in the way that we're using SAGE. Um, we, of course, uh, the UK, the US, a handful of other countries um, are relatively unusual in a global sense in having uh, these, these um, figurehead roles of, of a government chief scientific advisor. Um, so that is unusual. I mean, there have, through the course of the pandemic, of course, been a, a, a cast of characters in other countries who have um, emerged as the sort of scientific face um, of uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis in their own national settings. So they're sort of de facto operating in the kind of way that, that, that uh, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty do here. Um, but the actual formal structure in, in that way of a, of a chief scientific advisor is still a, a, a minority pursuit as it were globally um I, I mean of the committees um i think our sage structure is um uh unusual in i mean as tom was saying you know it's it's a it's a it's a large and shifting beast sage um and it's it's great strength when sage was first set up was its flexibility and the fact that you could bring people on who obviously were had the expertise that was relevant to the crisis at hand. I think in this particular crisis, one could perhaps argue that that fluidity has also been a weakness in that it's contributed to this sense, again, as Tom said, of, of uh, a body which is perhaps not sufficiently um, accountable uh, for the uh, advice that it's giving and, and the decisions that are flowing from that. It's quite hard to pin it down. And I mean, even though we now have this long list that was extracted uh, uh, after considerable effort from the government of, of those who attend. It's not that those are the people who attend every meeting, as it were. This is a, a, a range of people who are being brought in and out uh, according to need. So it leaves you with a rather unsatisfactory um, uh, sense of, of not really knowing um, you know, who's involved to what degree at what time and in what area. And I think that further muddies the water between uh, scientific inputs and then political uh, decisions that are taken uh, on the basis of those and obviously on the basis of other factors as well. Tracy, we had a big argument early on about the transparency of SAGE, both the membership but also the minutes and the papers. Got lots of questions from that, uh, from Jonathan Senker, who's asking about the publication, you know, how far is it desirable to publish scientific advice? Uh, Albert Salter, who's asking whether things like these famous model wars between Imperial and Oxford, should the people with those models be required to declare the assumptions? 
actions that go into their modeling so they can be subject to some sort of real-time peer review. What do you make of the pros and cons of transparency when you're trying to make decisions on you know, what is, after all, uh, a very rapidly shifting scene, uh, very difficult circumstances and very high stakes game? What do you think? Do you think the government's got it right now in terms of disclosure? Not at all. Not at all. I think at the moment that we were now reaching the moment where um, transparency about the trade-offs that are being made between competing pressures um, and, you know, whether to open schools, for example, and so on, it's just, it's just not there. And it's very difficult, therefore, for people not only to now understand the, um, this mysterious evidence going into decision-making, but to understand the, the strange alchemy um, that is then, um, is then subject to as the different requirements for for, you know the economy functioning um, and so on and um, being traded off I think I think that's really uh, important and I, I think the other thing that's been problematic throughout this is this idea that somehow transparency is this nice to do thing that you bolt on afterwards or retrofit to the to the inevitable inquiry uh, you know actually this communicating the evidence is part of managing this crisis it's part of it. When Sage became transparent a little bit more, they published the people who were on it. One of the big shocks was government itself realizing who was and wasn't on it uh, and what they needed and that they didn't have the expertise in engineering, for example. They needed better virology and that sort of thing. Government can't look at itself in a crisis uh, if it's not being transparent. And when we talk about government as a thing it isn't a thing is it it's many different organizations trying to understand each other the nhs is trying to understand public health england and so on and i think uh, it, it's been a huge failing uh, not to communicate about the evidence perhaps also um, in communicating more openly about the evidence there would have been better understanding of that evidence by ministers because there is clearly uh, a challenge there i never ever thought i would say this but I think there is too much science advice. Um, I don't think too much for understanding coronavirus and COVID-19 and all of those issues. Not at all. It's, you know, it's brilliant. But actually too much for the system to absorb. The biggest failing at the moment is actually trans translating what we know about this into functional policies. And that, I think, is, um, is where the system's falling down. And as a result, what you get is that kind of talk to the hand moment that goes on where you've got someone communicating through SAGE and then suddenly you know, doesn't appear to be making any impact whatsoever. That's really, that's really interesting. We had a question from John Vincent who, who suggested that, you know, actually perhaps particularly when you're presenting to people who aren't scientific experts in their own right, that uh, he suggested that good advice badly presented can be rejected, but poor advice well presented can be accepted. I mean, he was wondering whether we ought to tell scientists and engineers how to communicate better. But do you see any evidence that uh, perhaps the people who are more natural communicators, maybe the natural extroverts who are prepared to get up and get out there, uh, actually are dominating our airwaves, airwaves, maybe without perhaps so, so good science behind them? Is that a risk? Anyway, anyway, yeah, it, it, Tracy. No, it is a risk. I mean, look at the fact, you know, what you have at the moment in, um, in number 10, uh, you know, Dominic Cummings thinks that he's um, quite expert on data. Um, and, of course, then the people that end up able to manage a conversation with him um, uh, are in a very different position from the people that are trying to channel things in elsewhere. So I think that's a problem. There's a real lack of, I would not say so much about communication. I think it's more about realism among um, researchers about how politics works, how policy is made. 
Um, I, I think that's the, the problem. There is um, this idealistic thing that, you know, you t- turn up at a SAGE meeting and say your piece and that somehow that ends up on the right desks and not understanding quite the process that that has to go through. Um, I think that we could do a lot more work to equip researchers to be more realistic, be less starstruck maybe about being on um, SAGE and, and be, you know, get critical about where that advice is going from the very get-go. Tom, um, yeah, we've now got this big data dump from SAGE of loads of back minutes. Looking at that, you know, how clear do you think the advice has been to ministers and how far do you think it stands up this line? I think Lawrence Friedman's done quite a lot of delving into this. Do you share his sort of view that actually it does show that, you know, they actually were being uh, taking the scientific view in early March? Do you think that's uh, early mid-March? Do you think that's right? And are they still sticking with the science perhaps as religiously as they were early on? So, well, I mean, as you say, there's a huge number of uh, scientists and committees. There's, uh, I don't know if it's SPIM or SPY-M or SPY-B, but the, uh, yeah, there's, so SPY-M, for instance, is the uh, scientific advisory group on modelling, which takes in from these modellers, the most famous, you know, being the imperial team with Neil Ferguson. Um, And then there's groups that look at behavioral science, lots of other disciplines that then feed into SAGE itself, um, which is where we're meant to get this synthesis uh, that is then presented to the um, to the politicians. Um, I, I'm going to avoid saying as the science, but as the considered view of these many people. And it really is many people. Um, we, we've seen lists of the attendees. Of, initially, we didn't get a list of attendees, and there was an element of this appearing like some sort of shadowy scientific conspiracy. Um, actually, ironically, now now that all of the names have been published, or pretty much all of them, we're, we're far less interested in who's attending these. But it is interesting, nevertheless, to see some of these names and to realise that some of these are quite relatively junior people um, drawn from you know, academic institutions around around the country, from Lancaster, from Edinburgh, from Warwick, from Cambridge, from Oxford. Um, and, and suddenly, given quite a lot of prominence in 10 Downing Street, um, because they happen to have the expertise. Um, and in a sense, it's, it, it's quite a wonderful thing in the abstract to consider. Because um, we talk about SAGE as if it's a fixed thing, but actually it, it's convened on this ad hoc basis, on the basis of the emergency it's dealing with, when it goes out there and it finds the people that the that the scientific advisor considers to be the most useful in advising him and indeed then advising the government in turn about how we respond to things that require scientific input. But do you think we've been badly served by both perhaps ministers and our leading scientists, you know, because they have sort of been prepared to suggest that there is, uh, you know, at least in the early stages, almost a unique answer and certainly gave the impression early on when different countries were making different judgments about what to do and how to react, that the UK was actually being uniquely robustly based on the science. I think there's a bit of denunciation, maybe in anonymous briefings from Downing Street about, you know, other countries falling prey to these slightly naff populist uh, populist measures. Um, you know, but of course, we Brits, we were guided by these incredibly good scientists, name, erudite institution, etc. And therefore, we weren't falling into that, uh, that trap. I, I, I do think that the, there was a, a sort of 
hubris to to the rather insular sort of UK focused approach that was taken in the early stages. And I, I don't really understand why that was the case. The the I, I gave evidence alongside um, three of the the, the leading. Um, epidemiologists uh, in, in this debate from Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand last week, uh, a session for Yvette Cooper's uh, Home Affairs Committee. And, you know, one of the most striking things, listening particularly to colleagues from Hong Kong and Singapore, was, of course, the um, effects of SARS on the uh, entire culture, scientific, political, and public, uh, with respect to uh, their... Um, preparedness for for an outbreak like this and uh the um speed with which they would trigger uh, all of these responses as it were uh which which of course have contributed to their relative success in keeping um uh, numbers of deaths very low uh you know all of that knowledge was there in those systems um at some sort of academic level, of course, we knew about this in the UK, and yet somehow we failed. We have seemingly failed to weight those kind of inputs uh, and perspectives heavily enough in the uh, balance of factors that were being considered at that time. And 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 I don't really understand what went wrong there, but it does strike me as one of the really key questions, alongside, of course, the reliance on flu models etc and um, but even that you know if you had SARS in your mind as opposed to influenza you would sort of approach the whole thing through a slightly different prism from the off so I think um yeah the sort of rather nationalistic exceptionalism that we saw flickers of in some of the media stuff uh perhaps point to a deeper problem in 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 the configuration of advice at the start the other factor of course was also just diversity of disciplinary expertise and I'm very uh, sympathetic to, to, to criticisms from the public health community and others that you know why weren't more of of, of those kinds of experts on these uh, committees at an early stage? I think some effort has gone in now to redressing that, but definitely there were some very obvious categories of experts who were also uh, not in the room. It would seem at the earliest stage. Can I, can I just come in on the question of, of whether we're scientists? Um, because it's really important to remember that, that it isn't all about science as the driver, right? I mean, you know, advice is a function of the questions you ask. And those questions become ever more complex as, as we roll out policies to uh, mitigate the effects of the virus across society. And that's why uh, democracy is a really important part of this alongside the science advice, because you have people trying now to balance risks uh, and to come up with uh, responses, institutions like schools uh, and, and, and retailers and others trying to come up with responses that uh, work to you know, balance risks for them at a, at a much more individual level than the, the public health um, society level intervention. And you know, th- that is generating new questions. It's generating questions like, why are the car showrooms open, uh, but the school's not? It's generating questions like, um, you know, should we just be shielding certain people uh, much more assiduously? And is everyone else okay to go, around their bus- go about their business? And th- those sorts of things are, you know, are, are part of involving people in surfacing problems. For example, um, with quarantine, it was the case that a lot of people work abroad and had to work abroad and stay working abroad because of the um, crisis, because of a collapse of things like construction in London. 
And so uh, what about those people? How did it affect those people? Who's raising those questions? And that then leads us to then look at you know, those risk assessments again and to ask, do we even have the evidence to answer those questions? So I think it's really important that the question generation element of this, understanding how these policies are landing in society, what kind of impacts they're having. You know, people now starting to raise worries about truancy, for example. What's the evidence on whether people keeping kids out of school for three months or more actually then leads to um, big truancy problems later down the line? Uh, those kind of questions that they demand advice. Uh, and I think the driver isn't just that the scientists are plonking their spreadsheets on the table and, and, and then it all flows from there. We've got a lot of questions. I want to come on to actually the, you know, the maybe the underprivileging of some of the social science advice as opposed to the uh, more uh, what we might regard as harder science advice. We've got a whole bunch of questions about the quality of science advice. Uh, David Walker suggesting we need a, an independent science watchdog like the OBR. Uh, Till Bruckner from Transperimed asking what if the government follows science advice, but it t- later turns out to be wrong. We had a bit of a hint of that. Uh, at one stage from Therese Coffey, uh, and a question explicitly for Tracy from Isabel Webb Carey, which is really quite interesting, not about COVID at all, but how should ministers best balance scientific advice against economic and social cost of the actions scientists recommend? And she's looking in particular at mad cow disease. Was was John Major wrong to re- reject the recommendation that all 40,000 UK cattle should be slaughtered to avoid the risk of its spread to humans, which eventually led to under 200 mostly painful deaths. Modernized criteria would suggest he was right. Um, you know, do we actually go back and look and say, is the science advice right? And do we actually make it too difficult in some ways for ministers to be seen to reject maybe quite risk-averse science advice, which doesn't privilege things like the economy, uh, livelihoods versus lives, and these sorts of issues coming in now? Tom? Um, so... <laughs> So I think one of the interesting things about this is I think we're we're in danger of deifying the science uh, on the other side as well. We we, we criticise politicians um, for blaming scientists to explain their own decisions, and we 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 slightly sometimes sometimes fairly frame this as oh well if only they followed the science correctly. Um, you know, if, if only they didn't let it be sullied by um, by political considerations, then everything would be fine. Um, I think you know one of the, the tweets promoting this this podcast put this quite nicely. You know, what do we do when scientists when politicians don't follow the science? Um, and I think I think there's possibly a mistake in that as well. Um, the first mistake is that politicians have perfectly reasonable political considerations and they can take the inverted commas science on board but they can still think i've also got economists talking to me um i've also got other people who are looking at the more long term there are a series of extremely bad options of which science is only one part of the consideration um as we've seen you know just this week the economy is has had a catastrophic crash, which then feeds into this multifactorial system of which the virus is one of the simpler elements. Um, But the second thing, looking at those documents, and returning to your question about those documents, is that, yes, the... uh, I think the, the summaries have done quite a good job of summarising the science, but the science does not have an answer. It's not an equation out of which we get one definitive answer. You can quite clearly see in the SAGE documents that there are scientists perfectly reasonably with completely different views. Um, 
you can see that in February and March, there are scientists talking about these dreaded terms, herd immunity, and doing models for what would happen if we rely on herd immunity. Um, and it's quite clear that, that following the, the science at that stage would be doing things that are now considered to have been the wrong decisions. Um, so, so what I'd like to come out of this is not, not that the politicians are villains or that the scientists are villains or that just if, if those scientists had just found a way to come out of their ivory tower and communicate things better, then we'd all be in a better situation. Or if the politicians had just listened to those scientists, we'd all be in a better situation. But that there was incredible complexity about a virus that still has only existed for six months, that we did not know much about at the beginning, we still don't know much about. And that from that, science can draw a lot of different conclusions, all with massive error bars. Uh, and Trying to form policy out of that or even advise on policy is incredibly difficult. James, do we need a do we need a science watchdog like the OBR? Well, I, I, yeah, I don't. I mean, I think the, the I understand the, the thinking behind that sort of suggestion, but I think it, it, it simply then moves the locus of the sort of debate to, to another point in the system. I mean, I think the you know, I think the, the far better to uh, acknowledge the uncertainties that 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 exist in the first place in the in the scientific uh, evidence and 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 you know the fact that there isn't some you know clean linear relationship between that evidence and and then the the, the policies that result from it i think the problem we've seen in in this particular episode has been as we've said already a a, a, a you know a, a constant recourse to a sort of singular science uh, which has been very unhelpful uh, in the long run, even though politically perhaps it was convenient early on, um, so so I don't necessarily think we need new new structures of that kind, but we do need science advice uh, uh, bodies, including Sage, including the government chief scientists, to be very robust in uh, making clear the, the 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 messiness of what's going on in these situations and the fact that um, you know there are significant bands of, of uncertainty and there's significant scope for debate and that ultimately ministers must be accountable for the decisions that they make uh, as policy rather than uh, uh, shifting that onto the scientists. The UK probably put a better group of scientists together to advise them than probably any other country. It probably wasn't well balanced at the beginning. It grew, of course, in time. Um, so I do think one wants to look back to see what can we learn from the experience without blaming people? But I've read some of the early uh, uh, Sage uh, no, uh, sort of minutes. They should have been released earlier, in my opinion, although I'm not sure a lot of people would have been able to, to interpret them. But clearly, hindsight is always wonderful. The fact they let the uh, big events go ahead, uh, clearly in hindsight, was a mistake. And what I observe sitting here in America, because I personally, with my uh, partner, we went into self-imposed lockdown on March the 7th, and we didn't have very many cases in America by March the 7th. And my view is, it's very straightforward. You have to isolate and stop the spread of the disease. So I do think it's worth looking back. It didn't look to me like one was learning from what was going on in Italy and in Spain, China, Singapore and South Korea and Germany, I would say. So the question is that while they had incredible science advice, 
were they observing, and the minutes don't seem to show it, were they observing what was going on in different parts of the world that had lost control, Italy and Spain, had kept it under control, parts of China and South Korea. So it's, I think it is well worth looking back but not blaming people because I think there are some very significant lessons to be learned, to be quite honest. Uh, the issue of masks, I don't ever hear, and I didn't see in the I didn't see in the uh, minutes of me talking about the precautionary principle. If you've got a lot of scientific uncertainty, and let's say with masks, do they or do they not help limit the spread of disease? There's no downside to using masks. A precautionary approach would say, let's use masks until we can show maybe they're not useful. There's no real downside to a mask. So I didn't see the use of the precautionary principle when you've got significant uncertainty here on the side of caution. Recognizing caution does mean the social sciences, the natural, and the economy. Uh, so... Uh, I, I think there does need to be a good retrospective analysis, if only because it is quite likely we'll see a second wave. And Bob, I just wanted, I've got you there. Uh, you've talked very eloquently about COVID, but I just wanted to go back. COVID you know, concentrates the mind. We've got ministers focusing, focusing, focusing on the science. But obviously there's some other big slow burn issues where scientists have a lot to contribute, not least climate change, biodiversity loss. Just wondered if you could just briefly sort of talk about the difference for a chief scientific advisor in government in trying to get ministerial bandwidth and attention on in the heat of a pandemic and the challenges of making decisions there compared with actually trying to trying to get ministers to pay more attention to things that potentially have much bigger long run effects but you know uh maybe sees the attention less in the short term yes whenever you have an issue um such as climate change loss of biodiversity destruction of nature um which is not killing people instantly and visibly to the public, it's harder to make that issue move ahead. But there's no question in my mind that climate change and biodiversity loss, both caused by human activity, are even bigger issues than the current pandemic of COVID-19. The social, the economic consequences, the human health consequences of climate change and the loss of biodiversity are really very, very profound. And to be quite candid, we are not living up uh, to the goals that we have set ourselves, that governments have set, to try and limit climate change to less than two degrees Celsius. We are failing miserably to protect nature. And to be honest, while they are slow burn issues at one level, they're becoming more and more and more urgent, and we can't put them off. We have to strengthen our actions to limit climate change. We have to strengthen our actions to save nature and 
effectively there are solutions but the problem is especially on a long-term issue there are vested interests and power symmetries there are some people that like perverse subsidies that destroy our environment there are people that love using cheap coal um, although now many renewable energies such as wind uh, solar are becoming very competitive and i i was very pleased to see that the UK did had six weeks where they never use any coal uh, to produce electricity. That was a major step in my in my opinion. But what we also need to do is link what I call the post recovery of COVID two issues of climate change, biodiversity loss, and say, how are we going to stimulate an economic recovery from COVID? And can we find a win-win approach where we use far more green approaches that we can actually stimulate a recovery, economic recovery from COVID and do it in a way that will be good for food security, water security, human health, offsetting or limiting climate change and safeguarding nature. I think there's a great opportunity now to have a recovery system that takes all of these issues into account because they're all intercoupled. Climate change, biodiversity loss, food security, water security, energy security, they're all interlinked. We now have an opportunity to move forward in a way that can be good for the economy, good for public health, uh, and good for society in general. Do you think that uh, we've talked a bit about uh, about learning lessons and the risk of blame games? Uh, we saw over Brexit that uh, that it gave quite a lot of ministers in government uh, reasons to, if you like, discount the advice of economists. Uh, do you worry at all that the COVID experience may lead ministers to be more sceptical about what they've called to date the science? The answer is yes, and I'm even more worried that the lay public will be sceptical about science. The fact that the UK government kept saying everything is based on science and yet the death rate in the UK is clearly the worst in Europe and it's one of the highest in the world per capita. Um, and so I think if the public says, boy, the government listened to scientists, yet we had more people die in England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland collectively than any other country in Europe, why should we care about these scientists? And Tracy, uh, finally from you, uh, do you think we need to more robustly evaluate the quality of the science advice coming in? Are we... Uh... Or is transparency going to be the disinfecting sunlight on it? Well, transparency, transparency is a really important way of actually identifying the, the questions that aren't being asked. And, uh, and I think that it's, um, it's also a very important part of actually um, explaining some of these bigger dilemmas about how other factors uh, are being weighed. Um, and the, you know, when you think about transparency, what it is, it's an invitation to participate in policymaking. And that is something that in a crisis you absolutely need to do. And I feel that one of my, my biggest concerns about the, um, the current situation we have is the dynamics of it, the political dynamics of it seem to be eliminating talents 
and driving people away more than inviting it in. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of um, uh, sage advisors now taking to the airwaves to kind of voice their frustrations. And, uh, you know, we've obviously got situations where, you know, the, the chief nurse uh, doesn't get involved in the briefings quite so much um, since she wouldn't back um, uh, uh, the Cummings um, uh, trip. So I'm just concerned that we have, we have the opposite of what we need right now, which is right now we need to actually start asking some much broader questions about what evidence do we have for both the effects, the long-term effects of COVID, how it's going to be managed, but also um, for the impact of some of those policy innovations that were made on the fly in, in ways which um, completely distorted normal uh, functioning in society. And that concerns me um, that, that there needs to be a look now at, um, you know, at opening that invitation. I mean, to give you an example, Department of Health uh, in, reinstated its blog, um, which is a kind of blog that it uses to, to respond to things in the news. And basically, it reinstated it in response to a Sunday Times article that it wanted to debunk. And this was something like five weeks into the crisis, was the first time that the Department of Health had erected a public-facing interface to discuss um, uh, you know, the policies and the, and the issues that anyone could actually get at the reasoning behind them beyond those daily briefings. And so I think looking at the moment, at where are those interfaces uh, is really, really important. And how can they be used to share the reasoning so far so that people can actually get involved in this? Otherwise, we're getting cynicism and we're getting cynicism in the wider population, but we're also seeing it amongst advisors. And I just, want, I just wanted to fin finish off with all of you. Um, some people are saying that against potentially a second wave or whatever, that we need to have a very rapid lessons learned review so that we can uh, be better prepared next time around. I just wondered, uh, just quickly from all of you, uh, before we finish up here, could you each just give, uh, what's your sort of top lesson of the experience of COVID, the role of scientists uh, in managing this COVID outbreak so far? Uh, James, do you want to go off first? Well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I was uh, sympathetic to, to Emma Norris's argument for a, for a, for a rapid review. I think uh, that could be very helpful. I think the key lessons are the ones we've been talking about: transparency, um, clarity over where accountability uh, resides within this uh, complicated dance between uh, the scientists and the politics, uh, scientists and the politicians, um, and um, and I think uh, also um, ensuring. Um, at every stage uh, that we're accessing um, a, a, a really diverse range of, of relevant inputs, which I don't think, as I say, has been characteristic at every stage uh, so far. So I think, you know, that I do think the system is learning. I think the other thing is just being a, a bit of humility in acknowledging where mistakes have been made and, and demonstrating, uh, as Tracy's just been saying, a, a sort of openness to, to both listening and learning in, in how we move forward rather than simply saying we've, we've, we've got it all right all along or we have the, the best science in the world or the best this or the best that, which I just think at this point is, 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 is laughable given where we are. Well, I agree, with, I agree with that very much. And I would say that looking forward right now, the thing that you couldn't do at the beginning is what's most important, which is you couldn't give a reasonable risk assessment that, that people could operationalise. And now you can. And I think there's a job of work to be done to 
to counter some of the collateral damage that we've done with the lockdown. You know, it, it is the case if you look at earnest data that if you're a woman, and David Spiegel has done a great uh, review of this, if, you look, if you're a woman in uh, in her thirties, who's very unlikely anyway to have an accident uh, and die from it, uh, that your risk over the nine-week period uh, of the peak of the virus uh, was about a quarter of, of, of contracting um, COVID-19 and dying from it. it was about a quarter of your risk of dying of an accident. I don't think that message is out there, and I think uh, similarly now we're seeing with the, in school children and the fact that they aren't actually these super spreaders. Quite the opposite. I think risk in different settings and for different groups in a some granular detail is is important and I think that was missing at the beginning it is completely excusable uh, the search for it wasn't fast enough but now I think government needs to put across uh, a much clearer and more nuanced understanding of what the risks being posed are rather than just have this oh the you know um, the R numbers gone up again or the um, uh, you know it's a second wave I think that's really unhelpful uh, what we need is much much more nuanced granular approach um, which is one that we should have had at the beginning but obviously couldn't um, because the data wasn't there. Tom, do you think the public can cope with Trace's nuanced, granular approach? And can we avoid any lessons learned exercise just degenerating into a blame game between ministers and scientists? I really, really hope that, I mean, I think if there's one overriding lesson of this whole thing, it's that we have to get better at understanding risk and better at understanding nuance and better at understanding uncertainty. Um, that's, you know, th th those are the three things that, that have really come out of this. The fact that there are people in good faith trying to provide advice and make policy when we have these massive, massive error bars and when we don't know lots and lots of different things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think the schools going back is, is, has been a classic clash of all of these things where we've We've got quite good evidence on the risk to kids being very low. We've got less good evidence on the risk of whether they can transmit it. Um, and admits this, we have to make policy and go one way or the other. And uh, you can't necessarily just this glib response, oh, you don't care about children or, oh, you don't care about kids. Um, I hope that if there's a lesson learned, there will be a way for us to grow up politically as well as scientifically as a nation um, and get to an understanding of the nuance of all of these things. Um, you know, wh whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. And I really do hope that there won't be a blame game. I, I think it's very, very important for coping with a second wave and coping with this sort of thing in the future that we have a no-fault assessment, where we have a no-blame assessment, where we try to work out in a sort of truth and reconciliation style way what went on, um, and always with the acceptance that there were people at the centre of this who had to make a decision when there was no good decision and when the basis for that decision was pretty shaky. Okay, we're going to call it a close there. And I want to thank all my panellists, of course, understanding risk, understanding uncertainty, and certainly understanding nuance is what the Institute for Government's all about. So I'm hoping you will listen to more of our IFG live events, more of our podcast to understand what really is going on. Uh, as we say, if you listen to Kath Haddon's very excellent podcast with three cabinet secretaries last week, they all said that none of them had to confront anything like this in their very, very long careers. So both ministers and scientists are being 
confronted with some real difficulties here. And I hope that this podcast has shed some light on the real challenges that they've faced in doing that. So thank you very much for listening. And now uh, you can kick back and relax and just think about uh, how well prepared we might be if we have to confront something like this again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.